Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast for August 2010. My name is George Miller, and later in this programme I'll be talking to science writer Marek Kahn about the effects of climate change on the British Isles, not just the meteorological effects, but on our whole way of life. Wherever you've got a tension, wherever you've got a pressure, wherever you've got a trend, climate change intensifies that. My first guest today is Louise Doughty, who's just made her debut under the Faber imprint with her sixth novel, Whatever You Love. The book is narrated by Laura, a physiotherapist and single mother of two, who lives in a forlorn seaside town on the south coast. It opens with every parent's worst nightmare. Two police officers come to the door to tell Laura that her nine-year-old daughter Betty has been killed in a hit-and-run accident. The book explores Laura's terrible feelings of loss, which subsequently gather into plans for revenge on the man who killed Betty, who, it turns out, has a story of pain and loss of his own. Doughty intercuts this narrative with an account of Laura's marriage to David and its eventual disintegration when he goes off with Chloe, a woman he met at work. What raises the novel far beyond my rather anodyne account of it is the intensity with which Doughty inhabits Laura's feelings. Rawly emotional is how one critic characterised it. Another praised its visceral power. Yet the critics have also picked up on how cleverly crafted, how tautly constructed the book is. And so I began by asking Louise about these twin challenges, capturing the dark emotional intensity and constructing a compelling story. Well, I suppose there's there's two questions there, aren't there? I mean, there's first of all, there's the issue of going into such dark and difficult territory and how do you do it as a parent and the way I look at it uh, which I suppose is the answer to both of those questions in some ways is I very much divide it up when I write a first draft of anything not just this book of anything I do method act the feelings of the characters if you like I do actually put myself in their position which is a very very strange thing with this book obviously because it's imagining the kind of ultimate horror for any of us which is the death of a child But I have to say, although lots of people have said to me, oh, that must be very difficult, of course, the truth is it's horribly easy because the minute your children are old enough to leave the house on their own, you spend your whole life in a state of constant fear and paranoia. I mean, that's just the reality of parenting. And I think it's probably no coincidence that I started writing this book at an age where my elder child was leaving the house on her own. And it was a quite abiding obsession for me and quite unavoidable. So I couldn't not think about it, really. So that side of it, that writing, that very intense emotional first draft, it it was easier than you would think because it was there anyway. How do you get from from that anxiety that we probably all share about children going out on their own to what you've sort of described as method acting? Because that is several notches higher than than just, you know, being anxious about where your child is. Ah, because in a, in a way, that's the most remarkable thing about the book, really, is that is that the way that you inhabit those terrible, dark places through, throughout much of the book. And I just wondered if you say a little bit more about how you how you got into that position. Well, that's a very interesting question, really, because I think what that question is about it goes to the heart of what it is to be a writer and to put yourself empathetically in the position of anyone else. I mean, in this case, it's straightforward because it was the the mother of a, a child who's killed and I and a fear that you know lots of parents live with but I've had to do the same in in my fourth novel Fires in the Dark I had to imagine, imagine empathetically 
what it was like to be a middle-aged Romani man dying in a concentration camp in 1942. And that, again, was this sort of enormous imaginative leap where in order to write the first draft of that scene from Joseph's point of view, I did have to, if you like, imagine I was him and it was happening to me. I don't know. I suppose there's a whole theory that maybe um, maybe writers are touched with lunacy because I think part of the point is to be able to make that imaginative leap and to, for as long as it takes, really, really put yourself in that position. I suppose that's where the innate part of being a writer comes from. I'm not sure that's something that I could teach anybody or something that anybody could learn to do. I think um, as a trick, going somewhere like that in your head is something that you can either do or are prepared to do or can't do and are not prepared to do. And that's the sort of uh, the kind of the nebulous bit of of being a novelist, I guess. In a way, are you sort of suggesting that it was easier to to think yourself into that position than it was to think yourself into the position of a a Romani man in the the Second World War, that it, it was pushing beyond maternal feelings that you already had, but from a from base that was more familiar? I would say, in a way, they were both equally difficult, but in different, different directions. Imagining being Laura and what happens to her did make me go in a corner and cry a bit because it, it seemed so direct and seemed so related to my own life. Imagining being Joseph was equally distressing, but I suppose it passed more quickly because it was something that I did for the purposes of writing the first draft of a particular scene. And then it was probably a fear that I moved on from more quickly because it was less related to my own life. Obviously, when it's very close to your own life, it, I think it is something that leaves its mark. What about the, the, the other point, the sort, of, the sort of technical aspect of plotting this novel, of, of getting everything in the right place? Because it does seem very much like everything happens in the right place because you present the events of that afternoon in different places in the book it's not it's not a single continuous narrative is it no it's not and i was very very pleased when lots of the reviews noted that the narrative structure approvingly uh, that was a great relief because boy did i work on that aspect of it the book the first draft of the book was structured quite differently from how it is it was originally in alternating chapters before and after and before and after, you know, this cataclysmic event in Laura's life. And I realised about three quarters of the way through the first draft that it wasn't going to work because the plot of the book, it was a bit like a car that's kangaroo hopping, you know, it kept going and then stopping to go into flashback and then going again and stopping to go into flashback. And it was very difficult because what it meant was I had to take the whole novel apart scene by scene and put it back together again. And I've never had to do that with a book before, but I knew it was absolutely essential to get it right with this one. So I dismantled the whole thing, put it back together in a different way, and then realized after several weeks doing it that way that that didn't work either. And that was a horrible moment. I really thought maybe I've completely messed this one up, but then I took it apart for a second time and then put it back together again. And the third version, the kind of four part structure that it is published was the one that finally worked. But I think that's a problem you set for yourself as a novelist whenever you write a plot-driven novel, and particularly a plot-driven novel with flashbacks, because flashbacks always 
retard the action in the sense that the flashbacks, they can be used for revelation, they can be used for character development, but it's not the same as a kind of real-time present tense story, which is, is what you have in Whatever You Love for half of the book. And I just think they have to be handled with the most enormous care. I couldn't have written a book with this kind of structure as my first novel. I didn't have the technical ability to do it. It's only because it's novel number six, and I'm a bit long in the tooth now, that I was able to be ruthless and also able to perform um, what I call to my students major surgery without anaesthetic. That was what that book needed, and it needed it more than once. And that was certainly something I was only able to do because it was novel number six. Mm. But it seemed to me that there was the present tense of the story, the, the after, but, but you also succeeded in making the reader care about the narrative unfolding of, of the past. And that was, it wasn't just a flashback for information. It was actually, you were actually emotionally bound up in what was happening in, in the story of a, of a marriage disintegrating too, as well as this tragedy of the death of a child. Yes, that was quite deliberate. I knew that the flashbacks had to have their own narrative impulse. They couldn't just be there for illustration, otherwise the reader would get impatient, and rightly so. So there is a whole narrative strand in the past story about the breakup of Laura's marriage to David before their child is killed. And I made that deliberately slightly strange and ambiguous as well. At one point, Laura starts getting um, threatening phone calls and anonymous letters, which she believes are from David's new partner. So there's a whole mystery there to be unfolded as well. Also, another reason I did it was that the present tense story, what Laura does in the immediate aftermath of her daughter's death, is inevitably very full on and very intense. And I do think you do have to give your reader a bit of relief. I won't say light relief, but that sounds crass in the subject matter. But you do, there does have to be light and shade in a book. And although it's a book about bereavement, I didn't want it to be relentlessly grim. And I think it's very important that books like that aren't. So having the flashback scenes, particularly to Laura and David first meeting, was great because I could have them falling in love. I could put in lots of sex. Well, not lots of sex, but, you know, enough sex to keep the reader cheerful in the early Ooh. stages. You could you included that very erotic scene of physiotherapy, which I thought was quite an achievement to, uh, to make a physiotherapy clinic quite so erotic. Well, I'm, I'm really pleased you said that was erotic because that was one I worked quite hard on. We um, we had some friends around for Sunday lunch and the, the wife of a, a friend of my partner's is a physiotherapist. And I, I said to her, I said, OK, you know, talk me through you know what you do when you first examine a patient and she mentioned the bit about getting someone to raise their arms to look at their soft tissue and then having to shave the backs of very hairy male patients certain things and she was telling me this stuff perfectly matter-of-factly as a fully trained physiotherapist and I was just thinking great I know how I can use <laughs> can this. this but also I think a, a lot of what happens in that physiotherapy consultancy session it's not just about what's going on physically, because there is some physical patient physiotherapist contact between them, but it's also very much about the eye contact, about the way in which David makes his interest clear. And the fact that on Laura's side, there's been quite a long build up to that. She's met him a couple of times before. He's always sort of been in the back of her head as a kind of fantasy figure. And then it, it finally comes to be realized in a situation in which she is in a professional capacity and can't actually do anything about it until he signals his interest. And all the, the backstory, if you like, increases your, your concern for the characters, doesn't it? Because if you're immediately plunged into the tragedy without knowing much of, of what went before, then that, you know, that sort of attenuates your, your sense of identification with them, I think. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, you you know, you have to let your readers care. You know, Laura is somebody who's had a tough life. She's been a teenage carer for a mother who has Parkinson's disease. She's grown up without a father. But I, I wanted to give her a bit of fun as well, and you know, particularly in her early relationship with David. And I wanted the reader to realise what was at stake for her, the way in which she and David have this kind of mad sort of three-month romance before getting married almost on impulse. I thought then that somehow threw into sharp relief the tragedy of the marriage breakup and Laura's realisation that the fact is that David is just a very, very impulsive man. I mean, the point about David is that he's one of these men who wreaks enormous havoc in women's lives without any malice whatsoever. He, he never consciously means to hurt anybody, but because he's impulsive and he's unrestrained and he's not very good at putting himself in other people's shoes or working out how his actions impact upon other people, you know, he falls madly in love with Laura and then quite genuinely goes off and falls madly in love with Chloe, and which you know, obviously devastates Laura. But he, he doesn't at any stage intend to cause anyone any harm. And that, to me, seemed much more interesting than creating a male character who just happened to be a bastard. I mean, that, to me, wouldn't have been an interesting thing to do. I hope that what comes over in the book is, that, is, is David's complexity. And I wanted to make him real. Uh, in, in, while we're on the subject of David, I, I did give the manuscript to several friends to read before it went to my agent and publisher. And um, it was very interesting, the reactions of my women friends to David. <laughs> One who's very impulsive and romantic said to me, oh, I, I really fancied David okay. character. I, I thought he was great. And another who's a GP and very practical said to me, oh, I, I didn't like David at all. I mean, I can see why Laura falls for him because she's vulnerable, but I thought he was a psychopath. So I, I now divide my women friends up into those who fancy David and those who don't. <laughs> you talked about not making David just a just a bastard. And... You, you you chose to not to make the driver who kills Betty simply a bastard. You're, you're interested in, in who he is and, and where he comes from and what his story is. Now, tell me, tell me about that, how you, how you approached that. Well, that was important for the plot. It wouldn't have been very interesting if the driver of the car that kills Betty was just somebody who was stupid or careless or driving dangerously. I wanted to present his side of the story. I wanted to leave it ambiguous about how culpable he is. And I mean, having done a lot of research into deaths by dangerous driving, there is very often a huge amount of ambiguity about how culpable the driver is. And also this appalling dilemma, which is very much a matter for you know the police and the law, that you can never punish somebody adequately for doing something which may have only been careless but has still resulted in the loss of a loved one for a family. And it's very, very common for the families of people who've been killed in road accidents to feel incredibly aggrieved that the driver of the car, who's convicted of death by dangerous driving, will only get four or five years in prison. As it is, what turns out in the novel without giving it away is that the driver isn't even going to get that. But at the same time, I think it, it would have been facile to make him just some idiot in a four by four. He is more complex, he does have his own story, and Laura has to come and understand that and realise it. And then there turns out to be a, a development of a connection between them in what I hope is quite an unexpected way. 
But I mean, yeah. at first I didn't buy it, but I think in retrospect, the more I thought about it, the more I came round to buying it. I mean, did you but did you know that was going to be there from, from early on or was that something that sort of revealed itself to you it as you It was something wrote? that revealed itself. I knew that there was going to be some sort of development in the relationship between Laura and Armitage, who's the man who was driving the car that killed her daughter. I didn't know what form it would take. I didn't want to do anything crass as them having a romantic relationship, you know, the sort of thing that happens in films. I didn't really see how they could form a friendship. I knew that there had to be interaction between them, which was potentially violent. I wanted the reader to believe that Laura is actually capable of killing Amitage at one point or killing somebody close to him. So I went through most of the novel not entirely sure how that interaction would work. And then there came a point where I sat down to write a scene between them and it came to me. And I'm not going to say what happens, but it was one of those scenes where I sat back at the end of the day, looked at it and thought, where did that come from? Mm. Because it's a, it was a difficult and unexpected scene for me. So I knew it was going to be a difficult and unexpected scene for the reader. And in fact, it does divide readers. I've got away with it mostly with the reviews, but people who have read the book, I have had a couple of people come up to me saying they didn't like it or they, they didn't believe what happened or they were shocked by it. Uh, I, I think that's it's a common reaction. It's not a reaction. I'm worried about it. It's what I wanted and intended, really. I wanted a bit of a surprise at that point. I mean, I suppose the way in which Laura departs from other people who find themselves in the terrible situation that she does is not only that she has thoughts of revenge, but that she actually clearly intends for a lot of the book to act upon those thoughts. Where, where did that sort of impulse come from, do you think, within her and, and within you, that uh, deciding I, to... Uh, do I think it's just a matter of personality type, isn't it? I mean, I, I had this discussion with my partner, you know, what, what would you do if somebody, you know, harmed one of our children? And my answer was very simple, you know, I'd be see that knife block over there. I would take the longest blade I could fit in my handbag and I would go after them. And um, he's a much more sort of rational person than me. And we'd say, you know, we'd had you know, a long discussion about how, we, you know, would you let the law take its due process and all the rest of it. And I think it's a thing of personality type. I mean, I don't actually think that anybody really knows how they would behave until something like that happens to them. But I do believe that I I would be capable of behaving like Laura. I don't really have any doubt like that. It was also controversial in Fires in the Dark. I have the young boy who survives the concentration camp committing a really heinous act in order to survive. And several people said they didn't like that. At that point, they lost sympathy with him. And I was quite baffled. And I thought, well, actually, in his place, I'd have been more than capable of that if I'd seen my whole family down a concentration camp. So I think I think as an author, you can only write characters who behave in a way that feels emotionally true to you. And that is inevitably going to reflect your own personality. I mean, that's why writing novels is quite mm. a scary thing, mm. really, because people find out more about you mm. than you really wanted them to know. A lot of authors like to hide behind the idea that it's all fiction, but um, mm. when you write them yourself, you know that's not mm. true. It's all fact. Mm. It's all emotional bubble, fact. Bubbling up in your subconscious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how much, how much access to her own motivations and, and deeper feelings did you want Laura to have and how much did you want them to be sort of partially obscured to her and only gradually become... Um, apparent? Well, that's an interesting question because Laura doesn't really stop and analyse her own emotions at any time in the book. And I think that's because, particularly in the immediate story, she has been so 
blasted, if you like, by this thing that has happened to her, that it has almost wiped the slate clean. You know, she starts from sort of year zero, um, from the point at which her daughter dies. That is something that I picked up from my research. I read a lot of accounts by parents who had lost children, and there's a lot of books out there. I read a very interesting anthology, which was edited by two women in America who had both lost young sons in traffic accidents. I really did my research on that bit. And I think what people underestimate is the way in which people are not just grieving, but the slate is wiped clean. You know, nothing else matters. Nothing else is possible. To me, it seemed utterly plausible that from the moment Laura awakes, she is possessed by this appalling thing that has happened. And I do think that that something like that shifts your moral compass, even if only temporarily. There would there would be something wrong if it didn't, really. But at, at the same time, as you're saying, you can understand the impulse to reach out to the knife blog. You are also very interested in chains of causes and consequences and seeing, you know, as you say, not making the man behind the wheel simply a, a shadowy monster, but actually following some of those chains a long, long way back. Yes, I mean, that's been an abiding interest of mine since the beginning, really. I mean, my first novel, Crazy Paving, which was published way back in 1995, had a very strong theme based around chaos theory, which was very fashionable at the time in in the early 90s. And it was that whole idea that, you know, a butterfly beats its wings in Japan and a tornado happens over New Orleans. But I, I have for a long time been obsessed with the way in which a small decision can have completely catastrophic consequences. You know, you walk down a street and then you stop to get a newspaper so you don't get run over by the lorry that mounts the pavement or you take a different tube train and you're not in in the bomb, the appalling bombing that happens underground. And this is, I think, what we all live with all the time. But it's particularly noticeable when you live in a big city like London. You know, is there anybody out there who hasn't had the experience of stepping out into a street realising at the very last minute that there's a car coming too fast and stepping back and knowing that a moment's inattention and suddenly their entire family's lives could have been ruined. I mean, that's happened to all of us at some stage. And I think for a long while, I've been quite obsessed with the idea of accident and chance. You know, we weren't fated to meet the partner we were with. That happened because of an accident. You know, all those meetings are almost always accidental. If it hadn't been for a particular meeting, going to a particular party or whatever, your children wouldn't exist. You know, and I think that's been an abiding interest of mine that's probably revealed itself throughout most of my work. Let me ask you finally, Louise, how, how did you feel as you finished this book? I mean, were you emotionally drained by it or...? What what sort of what sort of feeling did it leave you with? I don't think, to be honest, that I was any more emotionally drained than I am at the end of any novel. I think finishing any novel is emotionally draining because you're leaving behind a whole world that you've created. I think also by that stage you're just knackered and want shot of it. And actually the hard bit is going back into it when you have to go through the editing process. Um, and the promotional process as well, because I think once you've exhausted a world, you tend to move on in your head. And what you want to talk about is what you're working on now, not the thing you finished um, a couple of years ago. I don't think I was more emotionally drained, but I think I did feel a profound sense of satisfaction that it was done and that a story which was a very difficult story to tell was out 
and there. And I won't have to go back to that territory again. I mean, um, I have an idea bubbling away for the next novel and there's going to be no death of a child. You know? <laughs> like, um, I think you, you move on. With each book, you move on. You feel you've nailed that subject matter and then you move on to something fresh and new and, and that's the great joy of it, really. So I'm pleased it's out there, but I'm also pleased it's done and I'm pleased I won't have to write that novel again, ever. Louise Doughty. Whatever You Love is out now in paperback. My second guest today is science writer and journalist Marek Conn. He's written about the Englishness of evolutionary theory in A Reason for Everything, about the birth of the British drug underground in Dope Girls, and the return of racial science in the Race Gallery. Much of my work, he has written, is about the implications of scientific thinking for ideas about human nature and society. And in his latest book, Turned Out Nice, his focus is on how the British Isles will change as the world heats up, not just how the climate and the natural environment will alter, but also how society will adapt. Of course, as the title indicates, at one level these islands stand to benefit as temperatures rise. Conn writes, buffered by the Atlantic, the British Isles will start to resemble a northern Arcadia, and their climate will be an object of envy rather than derision. But the title is also deeply ironic. By 2100, southern Britain swelters, London is an urban heat island, and the lives of our descendants, some of whom are already alive, will be very different. Much more regulated and confined, much more closely monitored, and a good deal more fearful, as the question of who should be allowed entry to this northern Arcadia becomes an ever more burning one. By 2100, Conn writes, life in Britain is something like life in a ship in the 1900s. A lot of people are closely packed together and have to share the same resources. The result is a regime of extensive and detailed regulations, together with a strong moralistic imperative of mutual respect and orderly community. We'll get on to those aspects of life later, but I began the interview by asking Marek why he wanted to look at a global problem in a national context. I was set the challenge of looking at climate change on a, on a, a national scale, or the, the scale of the British Isles. And when I started to think about it, I, I realised that it had potential for doing something, for thinking about climate change in, in ways that are actually rather difficult to do when one's thinking either about the world as a whole or about the places in the world that are going to be worst affected. It's not going to be the end of the world in, in, in this country, in, the, in these islands. And that actually opens up a bit of space to look at things that are going to be happening or likely to be happening at levels that we don't usually consider. It's, this is not about putting a saucepan of water on, on the gas and, and, and working out what happens as, as, as it heats up. This is about thinking about our relationships, thinking about how, well not really our relations, thinking about how our descendants may relate to each other, may relate to other parts of the world, how they may understand their relationship to their environment and, and, and their sense of, of national identity or other forms of identity. Now, people in other parts of the world will also have their, their relationships and, and perceptions of those kinds, their sense of themselves changed by climate, climate change, but uh, where the, the pressures of climate change are going to be absolutely overwhelming, they're just, uh, it's obviously much more important to, to think about the droughts, think about the floods. Here we have some different issues, and that's been very, very interesting to, to, to go into. The title of the book, nonetheless, carries quite an ironic charge. Yeah, turned out nice is is, um, is ironic in in, in, a, in a number of ways. Um, part of it is the way we use the phrase. 
we don't mean very much by it. It's one of those things, it's part of talking about the weather. And of course, all we're really saying when we talk about the weather is, is um, yeah, I kind of like you and Dana, uh, uh, let's, uh, let's get along, okay. The idea of, of turning out nice uh, relates to, to, the, uh, to the thing that people always say when you talk about climate change in Britain, which is uh, something along the lines of chance would be a fine thing. And yeah, I mean, I can, I can understand that. that. And um, uh, as one packs one's bag f for three seasons for a, a, a two-day excursion and, uh, and uh, you don't know what you're going to be faced with uh, when you come home after you, uh, when you go out, well, yeah, sure. The idea of pleasanter weather is superficially attractive, but it's superficial. And the image I have in mind is people saying to each other, yeah, it turned out nice, hasn't it? But actually, they're living in a world, not only a world that's much worse, but actually their own circumstances are much worse. And this is, this is the, the absolutely crucial thing, is, is that however you try and reckon it up, if we proceed on, on the path that we're on at the moment, and our descendants proceed on that path, and gas emissions continue along the kind of track that they're going along at the moment, come the end of the century, we can expect a world that is very, very tense and fraught and conflicted. I mean, think how volatile the world's markets are these days. Think uh, how important confidence is to, to the economy. And then think about a world in which Every week something shocking is happening in some part of the world, a, a harvest is failing, there's a flood here, a storm, storm there, a heat wave somewhere else. And, and that's just the dramatic stuff. People may be in their shirt sleeves, but they aren't going to be very relaxed if they're continually worrying about their jobs, uh, whether their pensions are worth anything anymore, or indeed whether they can find anything in the shops. All that being so, but at the same time, given our collective tendency to put our hands over our ears when the, when the news gets too bad. How did you calibrate the tone that you wanted to achieve in this book? What I wanted to do in this book was not preach to people or actually offer solutions, but to write about climate change, to think about climate change in a way which was different. It seems to me to be very important to, to try and find new ways, more or less creative ways, of engaging with, with the problem. I think I was guided most of all by the data, really. Um, what I've tried to do is, is say, okay, what might the world be like, what might the British Isles be like, if we carry on the way we are and our descendants carry on the way that, that we've been carrying on? So that's two things. One is emitting carbon um, uh, in, in the way that, that, burning carbon in the way that, that, that we are at the moment for long enough to cause the damage. And also taking the kinds of attitudes to each other towards the outside world and, and, uh, and to society forward into the future without really re-evaluating them. So this was a, about telling a, a story and making suggestions. This wasn't about creating a world. I, I've done a series of cameos of the future, but I've realised very early on when I started writing them that I really didn't want to make a model train set of the future. I didn't want to have a fully realised world. Um, what I wanted was lots and lots of suggestions that people could take in various ways um, that I hoped would actually be a little bit unsettling, but not without humour. 
the, the cover of the book has has been designed. Um, I was very pleased that that that, um, that without me prompting them, um, the, the, the the design people came up with a, a, an ironic and humorous one. My sense of humor does tend towards the somewhat dry, and um, well, it's it's a way of coping with the awareness of, of grave and ominous news, and I. I, I, I think I, ho- I, I hope that some of that has come through into the book. So an aspect of the book is really a thought experiment. It's taking the data, as you say, and extrapolating from it, but not limiting it to the, the results in the physical world, but also looking at how we relate to each other, how politics will change, how international relations will change. So looking at it in a much wider context than perhaps we generally do. It seemed very obvious um, for, uh, after I'd thought about it for a very short period of time that the challenge of climate change for these islands is very, very different than it is for almost anywhere else in the world. It's quite remarkable how singular the, the prospects for the future are for Britain and Ireland. And these prospects seem to me to be to, to be um, pivoted around a, a change in the relationship between Britain, the, the, the nations of Britain and Ireland, and everywhere else, and actually also between the the, the different regions and, and, and nations of of these islands themselves, the picture that, that that emerged as I started to think about this was well, one in which we are buffered by the Atlantic. The key to this is is that we're in the shade of the Atlantic, that the the, the Atlantic Ocean swaddles our, our climate, and it's going to continue to do so. Whatever happens to the Atlantic Ocean currents, in, in fact, actually, if they're, they're disturbed, it'll probably cool the place down even more and uh, accentuate the differences between us and, and the continent. And uh, I found myself starting to think about, about how that would play out with the sorts of ideas about ourselves that, that swirl around the, these islands at the moment, and, and, and in particular the, the, the deep ambivalence in our relationship with elsewhere, our views about diversity and who is us and who is them, and, and how we manage the, the relationships between us and them and who becomes us and, and all the rest of it. Also, and this is something that, that I've, I've gone on to think about more and more since completing the book, thinking about a society that doesn't really, isn't really that keen on engaging with itself civically and politically, which, which is at odds, disgruntled, disaffected with democracy while fully committed to it formally but doesn't really live it. And I'm thinking about a, a, a place that gets more and more crowded because of, partly because of population growth, but, but also because of the need for energy efficiency. Cities are efficient energetically. Dense housing is efficient energetically, and presumably that's going, going to be an immensely powerful force in the future. And, you know, the stuff that's not built on is going to be used for growing food, except for the bits around in the... The the, uh, the high boggy peaty bits which uh, which have got going to have problems of their own. So this is all this is all about exploring um, the need to revive ourselves civically and and, 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 and and politically. You mentioned cities, and you devote quite a lengthy chapter in the book to, to London. Understandably, a London which has characteristics in common with some continental cities. You describe it as being steeped in heat, which I thought was a very nice way of, of describing it. And as you say, people living much more energy efficiently and in much more um, compact surroundings. And you take you take the year twenty one hundred as kind of a key point of comparison. What do you think that the salient distinctions will be between the London of now and the London of then? It's going to be like it is, but much more so. 
this is how I'm seeing um, the British Isles as a whole. Obviously, that follows from the the, the basic uh, premise of the book, which is 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 what happens if if people carry on as we're doing at the moment. So um, I'm, I'm not trying to invent new things that haven't yet been foreseen. But uh, certainly, I mean, you, you, one's already seeing this. That there's already talk about about the need to to make uh, London much much more dense. London actually isn't a very dense city at the moment, particularly compared to a number of comparable places. Well, Barcelona is incredibly dense in the in the centre. Paris is dense. And people can live well in those those places, so it's not necessarily worse. One of the nice things about 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 this is, is that um, one does imagine a, a really a quite substantial and perhaps you could say profound greening of, of of cities. The greening of cities in the past was creating open areas, parks and gardens and so on. The greening in the future is, is going to be integrating the green into buildings themselves, covering the, the walls and the uh, the roofs and one can already see certain certain buildings even with with green walls in in, in London already and I'm imagining that this is going to become the norm but I'm also imagining a city in which movement is is very very difficult movement throughout the country is going to be difficult it's going to be problematic because effectively in my future the question is asked about every journey, is this journey really necessary, like the old wartime slogan, except it won't just be a slogan to search your own conscience with. It's something that um, I've imagined a transport system that is actually automated and controlled by, by computers. So you're no longer a driver, you're a passenger in your own car. And to, to make a journey, you actually have to bid for space on the roads, uh, according to a finely computed points system based on how, how, how worthwhile and necessary your, your needs are. Uh, so I imagine a London which has, has become much more uh, of a network than a, a hub-and-spoke place. The Victorians built the underground system like the spokes of wheels, so it, it all goes into the centre. And I'm imagining, yeah, the underground's still there, the tube's still there, but it just gets, there's just no way of cooling it down in summer, so it doesn't work as a local line anymore. And peripheral centres... Um, have become much more important. So instead of there being suburbs, it's going to be a different kind of uh, network city. And presumably that'll also be true of other other mega cities in, in the future. You mentioned the civic aspect and you posit some positive developments there. You imagine the end of a throwaway society and a greater sense of interpersonal responsibility and people working at their relationships rather than discarding them on the, on the credit side. And on the debit side, you imagine a world where surveillance is much more prevalent, where everybody's movements are being monitored and we're all having to be much more careful about our behavior because we now realize the implications of it. Can you expand a bit on, on, the, on that sort of interpersonal and civic side of your picture? I felt that I wanted to think about how climate would affect not just political relationships or international ones or, or, or even um, local community ones, but relations between people, even intimate relationships. And I thought, well, would they? And as I thought about it, I thought, yes, they would, actually, because, you know, the climate is all around us it's, uh, and it does actually condition our, uh, our lives. And you know, there's a sort of stereotypic way of looking at it that, uh, you know, in southern Europe, people have siestas and... and um, and their relationships, are, uh, they're working, and their and their intimate relationships are set, said to be uh, all organised around around the uh, 
the, the changes in the, in, in the heat and, and so on. I thought there might, might well be more to it than that. I, I suppose at some points I, I am, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm describing changes that I actually think might be quite a good thing to have. But I've tried to be a bit circumspect about, about this. I, I've, in the, the passage about personal morality, I've tried to indicate that, that it's really come from a sense of insecurity. It's not so much that people have felt free to review the way they relate to each other, but a lot more of it is, 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 has come from them being frightened and um, perhaps falling back on traditional morality. And that's not my own particular approach to life, though I, I suppose if you, you read the book and that is how you live your life, then, then perhaps you, you, you might see it as, a, as a, a, an entirely welcome development. I, don't, I have more mixed feelings about this. But I, I do think, I mean, I think for other reasons, actually, that, that, that um, we're living in a very strange moment where relationships have become very highly overstretched and unsustainable. And, and it's, I, I personally find it a little bit curious that, that people have made this explicit when they're talking about stuff. You know, there, there are now people, more and more people talking um, quite influentially, well, perhaps not influentially in terms of people doing anything, but in terms of people listening, about how having more stuff doesn't make us more happy. The idea that, that we now need to look at happiness rather than absolute material standards of living is, is becoming much more mainstream and solid in a way that, that, that it never used to be because it's on, based on much many more data apart from anything else. But people haven't started saying, um, saying the same sorts of things about relationships. Well, I reckon they probably will, and I reckon they will without, without the climate changing, but the likely effect of the climate seems to be to be pretty much the same across the board. Wherever you've got a tension, wherever you've got a pressure, wherever you've got a trend, climate change intensifies that. So for what we look at the, the, the more obvious headline one of, of, of immigration, well, this country agonizes over immigration, it's deeply ambivalent over its attitude towards, towards people coming in and, uh, and their status within this country. And, uh, it's not anti-immigration as such, it's it deeply, deeply conflicted and, and, and it doesn't, collectively speaking, it doesn't really quite know how to deal with it. That would seem to me to be the, the, the story of, of, of this country for the foreseeable future, whatever happens to the climate. But as the climate changes, if the climate changes, then it is really going to, to add to those pressures, which makes it all the more necessary for us to say, OK, if we want to prepare for climate change, we start to think about the way the way we relate to each other, the, the way that uh, our society is formally organised and the way it works as, as, as a communities and, and, a, and a democracy. You describe at one point measures taken to attenuate climate change as belated and ineffectual. And it seemed to me that was what you took the status quo really to be as far as our present state of activity goes. I wondered in conclusion, Marek, what changes in your own sort of attitudes came about as a result of spending a couple of years thinking about that comparative lack of attention, comparative lack, failure to take action? Did you end the book in a more sober, pessimistic frame of mind than you began it? I think that the more I thought about climate change um, and the more detail in which I thought about it, my mood, I don't think, became any less pessimistic, but it was less emotional. I, I think probably what happened was that I came into it thinking, yeah, 
it's not going to happen. Nobody's going to turn around until they uh, until it's too late. You have to feel the climate around you. You know, you have to feel extremes of weird weather uh, in order to feel that it really matters. You know, you have. It's very difficult to think about it happening in the future. It has to be happening right now. And that obviously applies at the uh, at all levels of, of power, uh, to, uh, up to, to, to the international levels. There's always short-term interest, that there's always cogent arguments for putting first. But having thought about the possibilities, I, I, I think my pessimism of the pessimism of, of the spirit is, is 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 alleviated to some extent because. Um, Although objectively, my pe- pessimism of, of the intellect is is just as bad as it started. <laughs> I can also see lots of lots of ways of of, of getting to work to to deal with this, and um, in particular, um, I, I feel very pleased to, to have got hold of what I what I actually think is the problem. It's not it's not focusing on the technology. It's not 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 it's not um, above. It's uh, uh, the need to. Um, to change the light bulbs and to forswear air travel at the domestic level and the need to make these huge strategic world historical changes in our sources of energy at the, the global level. It's not just that, it's actually about starting to think about how we work as, as societies and communities and as, and as nations and to work very vigorously on not just reinventing but uh, enriching and, and innovating in, in, in in all those areas, and of course, um, the great thing about this uh, this uh, this strategy is is that um, well, I'd like to think you can make quick um, cause with common cause with skeptics and climate change deniers because you know you do these things, you get a better society, whether or not the climate changes. Marek Con, turned out nice is out now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast. But there are lots more author interviews and features on the Faber website which you'll find at faber.co.uk. I'll be back again soon with another podcast, in which my guests will include Norman Lebrecht, answering the question, Why Mahler? in the 150th anniversary year of the Austrian composer's birth. I hope you can join me then. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.